Hi everyone, and thanks for listening to this podcast. This is just a quick note at the start to say that I've split this interview with Amy Butt across two podcast episodes so it's more listenable in bite-sized chunks. I had originally planned to make this interview just one half hour or so long episode, but Amy had so much to say that was interesting, so much that I thought you would enjoy, and she offers so many glimpses into different worlds of fiction, seen through an informed and compassionate architectural lens, that we just kept talking. And, as a consequence, there are two episodes. The first one, this one you're listening to right now, is a little bit more concise, a little bit more polished, and the second one is a bit looser, a bit more roughly edited, but still enjoyable and informative. Anyway, I hope you enjoy listening. This podcast and the following message are sponsored by A Strange Sense of Alienation. Look around you. It's all there as normal. But wait. Look closer. Anything seem a little strange? Look closer still. Why, the whole world is not what it seems. A strange sense of alienation. What is and what isn't? And who are you to decide? Hi, welcome to Parallel Worlds. I'm very happy to welcome Amy Butt to our podcast today. Amy is a fully qualified architect that is an architect with a big A, someone who can legitimately design and sign off on an entire building, as well as being a lecturer at Reading University in the UK. Her approach to architecture is one that encourages participation and embodies progressive social development. She co-founded the Involve Collective, who run installations and workshops specifically aimed at broadening participation in architecture. They've worked in numerous large institutions, Tate Britain, Open City, the V&A Museum, and schools and youth groups all over the place. But the reason we're talking to Amy today, besides spreading a vision of architecture as something that affects us all and something that we can participate in and something we can collectively own, is that Amy is an expert in science fiction. She's read and watched countless books and films and has an encyclopedic knowledge on very specific and niche subjects. And I'm really excited to speak to her because she's just so enthusiastic, full of incredible ideas. And I'm very excited about this conversation. So thank you so much for giving up your free time, not even your free time, your lockdown time to (laughs) come on the podcast and talk to us. Oh, well, it is an absolute joy to be invited. And I have to say that's one of the nicest introductions I've ever had. So thank you. There's a lot of copying and pasting in that. <laughs> I, can't, I can't really claim credit for it myself. Um, <laughs> thanks for coming on. You are an expert in sci-fi or somebody who knows a lot about sci-fi at least. Oh, well, I think, uh, I don't know whether I would necessarily call myself an expert. I think the one of the great joys of working with such a um, fantastic community of people like science fiction fans are is that you realise the, the sheer depth of knowledge that some people are able to accumulate over a lifetime. And I think I, I aspire to that level of uh, fandom, which has been attained by some people. But uh, I'm very happy to be able to kind of dabble in the margins and kind of explore the strange new worlds which science fiction opens up to us. Do you find being an architect 
changes the way that you see science fiction and sort of stories and the way that worlds are constructed? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I always find that when I'm talking to people about books that we've read or films that we've watched, I've become fixated on the settings and the ways in which the worlds are described within them. So, for example, we were just recently reading N.K. Jemison's fantastic fantasy trilogy, Broken Earth trilogy, which looks at a post-apocalyptic earth where climate change has resulted in perennial acid rain and the entire material culture has shifted away from the use of metal which is seen as being deeply untrustworthy and unstable to use of stone and crystal and glass and while a lot of the people I talked to about this novel were really fascinated about the social relations I just got absolutely sucked in by the material culture and the way in which it changed the built environment and what was possible to be made within those spaces and the thing that I found so fascinating with that book was that it really challenged the way in which we associate particular materials with an idea of technological progress so that we perhaps imagine that a world without metal would be necessarily simpler socially than our contemporary society but actually the same um, social richness exists and the same kind of technological mastery exists but it's focused on a really different material basis so they talk a lot about resonances of crystal and the kind of refinement of glass and lenses and things like that instead of metal clad skyscrapers yeah so it's, it's a very different uh, idea of what a future might be and it kind of unpicks the way in which we might imagine a particular material associated with a future yeah and i guess aesthetically it's quite different from the um the stereotypical view that people might have of, of sci-fi as being sort of lasers Hugely. and you know shiny big <laughs> glass towers and and spaceships and things like that yeah i'm really fascinated by science fiction which unpicks some of the tropes that imagine that the future will necessarily be high density high rise urban development and instead look at what would happen if we could begin to imagine alternative social structures or alternative ways of uh, living in the world based on a built environment which is low rise or unassuming or domestic in its scale that's sort of funny because i remember hearing um i grew up really close to where jg ballard used to live um Mm. jg ballard one of the great sci-fi names of of the last sort of 50 60 years i guess and i didn't know anything about him until after he died and after i'd moved away but one of the things that he said was that there was so much artifice and so much more that you could gain from living in mm-hmm. the very boring suburbs where I grew up <laughs> than you could get from any sort of sci-fi, high-rise, crazy, futuristic future. Absolutely. Um, I'm such a, a, well, I'm a massive fan of his work and I think uh, most architects are because he's one of the few science fiction authors who really celebrates the potential of architecture to transform social relations. Uh, I think he he kind of stokes architects' egos. He makes us think that we have the power to change the world very dramatically. So it's always uh, vaguely comforting to read his work for me. Uh, his essay, Which Way to Inner Space, I think is absolutely fascinating. And it's about how science fiction can not only allow us to explore imaginary or potentially real outer space but it can allow us to reflect back on ourselves uh, looking at the inner space of the human psyche and kind of confront the strangeness within our own minds as well well that leads me nicely on to we were going to talk about heat death of the universe yeah and these kind of notions of gendered space and the hyper domestic that pamela zaline talks about Mm. yeah would you be able to sort of tell us a little bit about that story and, and and what it does yeah 
Absolutely. So, so we spoke a little bit about uh, the kind of tropes of science fiction. Um, so they might be things like uh, rocket ships, the time machine, um, things which have become kind of a familiar icon uh, that acts as a way of kind of signifying that what we're engaging with is a science fictional story. Um, it's kind of the equivalent of the wizard's wand. It's a, a visual reminder or um a node around which a science fiction story operates. Um, and what I really like about um, Pamela Zaline's um, short story, Heat Death of the Universe, is that it is in, uh, it has none of those tropes. They are all really dramatically absent. And instead, it really focuses in on the, the mundane, everyday experience of uh, one woman, yeah, Sarah Boyle. So the short story focuses on Sarah Boyle and it's talking through her domestic life as she goes shopping in the supermarket, gets her kids breakfast, prepares for the birthday party for one of her children. And throughout all of it, she is continually kind of confronted by the innate strangeness of her own everyday life. So for example, there's a really wonderful segment where she talks extensively about a cereal box and while she's making her kids breakfast. She talks about it, trying to see it from the perspective of an external culture to think about how this object which is so mundane to her as to become almost invisible might be seen if you were seeing it for the first time if you were encountering it anew and how bizarre it's brightly colored patterns the kind of characters on it the the way it's so over enthusiastic would seem to someone perhaps who wasn't as ingrained within our particular culture i'll just read you this bit because it's so so joyful if one can imagine it considered as an abstract object by members of a totally separate culture one can see that the cereal box might seem a beautiful thing the solid rectangle is neatly joined in classical in proportions on it are squandered wealths of richest colors Virgin blues, crimsons, dense ochres, precious pigments once reserved for sacred paintings and as cosmetics for the blind faces of marble gods. For me, that's what I really love about this story is this um, way that it allows us the opportunity to see the strangeness which is already embedded within our everyday lives um, and kind of step back and really remark on that and revel in it. That sounds like a great book. Personally, my favourite sci-fi is whenever you encounter something that causes you to reflect on the world that's around you. Mm. It's an easy thing to sort of go and create an entire fantastical world, something that doesn't have any of the problems of, of reality and sort of is completely escapist and this kind of thing. Mm. But it's even more powerful and sort of affecting if you can create something which causes you to question what actually our reality looks like. Stuff like mm, that always mm -hmm. seems to sort of sit with me personally a lot longer than something that is just sort of lasers and aliens. Yeah, um, I mean, and, and there's a, a really lovely kind of rich tradition of slightly more, I suppose what I would call um, domestic science fiction or uh, science fiction that plays with that 
notion of inner space that Ballard talked about, which looks at how the the space of the home can be a deeply strange place if we if we inhabit it and really consider it thoroughly. Novels like J.G. Ballard's High Rise is the classic example. Um, So that looks at a high rise development in London's Docklands and a group of people who move in and gradually begin to isolate themselves from the world outside and form kind of tribal groups and begin to attack one another and begin to segregate themselves based on the different floors that they find themselves on, this kind of stratified society that that has been constructed by the physical space of the high rise and what i really love about that particular novel is that there's no strange otherworldly presence which is acting upon them which is making them act in this way instead it is just the fact of themselves and the relationships that exist between them when they are stacked up in this building and the presence of the building itself so ballard talks about the high rise exuding a miasma of dead concrete and that this somehow kind of seeps into their collective subconscious and and warps them makes them become strange so he really revels in this idea that something as mundane as an apartment in a high rise could actually be deeply terrifying or um you know encourage horrific acts of um savagery in some way so yeah it's a really fascinating exploration of what might be possible within within the home it goes from something that seems so mundane and so normal Mm. and so sort of everyday to somewhere that you couldn't have predicted you know it's sort of this (laughs) entropic ending of of complete chaos and disaster but in a (laughs) method that i think would be hard to just predict from the very start. I mean, that one also makes me think of things like Doris Lessing's novel Memoirs of a Survivor, which is uh, similarly set within an apartment block after some great crisis has occurred and uh, social structures seem to have dissolved in some way. And rather than being, again, rather than there being this kind of external pressure which has created something new, the main character in that begins to stay within her flat and kind of contemplate her existence and begins to find that she can in some way create a threshold in her living environment by staring at one of the walls for a really long period of time until the wall starts to dissolve. (laughs) And yeah, it's, it's beautifully weird. And that then they're you're not quite sure if there is another world on the other side of this wall and she has actually created some kind of portal um, kind of through some psychic engagement with the fabric of this building or whether or not she has slipped into some kind of fugue state uh, and is imagining the whole thing. So it's this beautiful kind of slippage of various different notions of reality because you're not really sure whether there is this parallel world, this kind of Narnia on the other side of her wall or whether or not this kind of the construction of reality is all in her own mind anyway. So there's this other layer of a threshold to strangeness which already exists within herself that she's found in some way. Yeah, so that's a, another really beautiful one that plays with those same ideas. 
Would I be right in assuming that that was written in a period where there was a large change towards high-rise living and this kind of thing? Or is it something that was later? Yeah, so Doris Lessing's was later, I think. Uh, J.G. Ballard's was certainly uh, in the 1970s he wrote that. And there was absolutely a a real groundswell of various different novels and short stories that were written about high-rise living, particularly in the UK and the US. In response, I think, to the kind of radical changes that were happening within the built environment at that time and the way in which people were being asked to inhabit buildings which they had no previous knowledge of, um, that there was a, a demand being placed on people to begin to change their idea of what home might be. Um, and in the 1970s, in particular in the UK, there started to be a sort of social and political pushback against that, as some examples of those buildings were proven to have been constructed to lower sta- safety standards. So people became very hesitant to live in them. And what I really like about the, the science fiction response to that is that it, to me anyway, begins to speak to um, a lot of kind of buried fears and gut reactions to places. Science fiction as a genre isn't as confined as literary fiction to this kind of ideal of realism. So it's a place where you can kind of revel in imaginary strangeness without being kind of confined to what is plausible or what is likely. So it becomes a space where things like a fear that living on the 300th floor of a high rise will fundamentally change humanity can actually be played out and and imagined um, where, um, yeah, and I think it really allows us to kind of as readers explore those darker more twisted fears that kind of sneak up on us in the night and actually inhabit them for a short period of time yeah in a sort of in a safe way i guess because yeah, you can yeah. <laughs> you can put the book down at the end of the evening and uh... <laughs> yeah and then you can step back and say well you know do i think that that fear was founded well founded or do i think that actually uh, perhaps having traveled on this hyperbolic journey i can relate to that space in a way which is more founded on my own experience we find ourselves in a completely different scenario now than we were in two or three months ago. And I'm curious as to how sci-fi might react to this, Mm. because I don't feel like at the moment we're we're thoroughly equipped with the vocabulary to be able to assess what's going on. You know, if you think about popular sci-fi that people know that's about pandemics or about some sort of massive famine or anything like that, it all becomes dystopian quite quickly Mm. and sort of, you know, people marauding around shooting each other and things like that. Mm. And the reality of the situation that we have is so different to that. It's got a, yeah. a like a hyper-mundanity to it. Whenever I check in with any of my friends or anything like that, the things that we talk about are really, really mundane things. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm just curious as to what, what you think, um, well, first of all, which sci-fi might equip people for, for the scenario that we're in at the moment. And secondly, if there's anybody who's sort of worked in a similar sort of space to this, who has yeah. themes that might be, they might be doing something interesting right now, you know, whilst they're, whilst they're locked away at home. 
Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's a really interesting question because, as you say, so much contagion or apocalyptic science fiction assumes that the moment a crisis hits, the pre-existing political and social structure will absolutely dissolve and we will become kind of feral bands of people fighting for survival. Within that kind of trope, there's very little suggestion that what we might actually do is form mutual aid societies and cooperatives and try and look after our neighbours and continue to attempt to work and attempt to produce art Um, all of those kinds of things seem kind of an anathema to that trope which means that for me there are a couple of perhaps books which explore that quite interestingly the one that kind of leaps immediately to mind would be octavia butler's parables trilogy it does have a bit of the apocalyptic slant there are definitely kind of marauding bands outside of the walls of the commune it tries to look at how we might attempt to continually remake society or continually remake communities. So it follows a group of people as they try and found a new village, a new cooperative working space within these very violent times that they find themselves. And so I think there are some really interesting things to talk about there in terms of the way it spends quite a lot of time talking about things like the kind of rotors of who ends up doing maintenance work and the kind of mundane things that you would need to do to continue to support one another within a seemingly apocalyptic landscape. And on the same theme, the work of Kim Stanley Robinson is really interesting. So he writes a lot of fiction which deals very specifically with grand social change or political change and looking at how we might work towards an idea of a better society so he kind of grapples with the idea of utopia really resolutely and one that leaps to mind for me is the book uh, new york 2140 which is about a post-flood earth so the ice caps have melted the first flood waters have come in and risen and he looks at the inhabitants of various different buildings in new york and how they are dealing with that and the thing that I find really fascinating about that is that he imagines that the New York Stock Exchange continues to operate and they start trading tidal futures instead of trading food futures and a whole new economic system around the risk of flood begins. And I think what he talks about very well in that novel is the idea that we can't assume that a crisis will necessarily create social or political change, that capitalist structures in that novel are horrifyingly resilient that a huge amounts of profit are amassed off this disaster and so then he's looking at how people within those workers cooperatives housing cooperatives that exist within the city might affect small-scale political change rather than assuming that the crisis will necessarily bring that about and i think that for me becomes really pertinent right now because there's a kind of Certainly when I'm talking with friends, discussions about whether or not this crisis will bring about a greater social support networks for people, whether there will be greater appreciation for the work done by people in service sectors and support sectors, which might perhaps have previously been undervalued. And I think what New York 2140 reminds me is that I can't assume that the crisis alone will be enough to bring about that change, that if that's something that I want to see happen, then it's important that within the kind of domestic spaces within the communities that we build that we also work for that change so i think uh, his work's lovely for that lots of committee meetings it is not a riveting (laughs) read (laughs) but a good i think reflection of political reality (laughs) 
I remember you saying before that one of his stated goals is to make people join committees. <laughs> and sort of a marker of success for yeah. him would be that people start <laughs> taking place in, in sort of local governance in some sort of way. I, I mean, I really do love his fiction, but there, I mean, there's one which is all about the, the California trilogy, which is all about water management in California. And I have to say that the committee meetings in that got to me. I couldn't quite make it through them, but very vital and necessary work. So um, I think he's he's one of the authors who speaks very clearly about the idea of science fiction being something which doesn't exist as a an imaginary world which is separate to reality. He he talks very much about the way in which science fiction, because it becomes part of our collective cultural understanding, because it has the opportunity of influencing the way in which we might respond to the world, has agency and has the potential to shift our uh, responses and our relationships to situations that we encounter. And I think he takes that as a responsibility that an author has to try and play out scenarios in a way which might equip people to be able to contemplate their own lived experience from a, a slightly kind of a strange perspective. Yeah, it sounds like a really um, a really nice approach that you can sort of mm. um, play with these ideas in in a sort of yeah in a fictional setting, and then use them to form your own actions in a real setting later on. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. like. I mean, what you say about the the catastrophe not necessarily being the thing that directly enacts social change Mm. is probably entirely true. This podcast is sponsored by The Absent Paradigm. The Absent Paradigm will provide the fiction, you fill in the gaps. This podcast and the following message are sponsored by your own internal projections. You're a busy person. You bring the world with you wherever you go. Why not project all of the thoughts and feelings accrued in your lifetime onto every work of fiction you encounter? Your own internal projections. Bring your own. Every time we talk, I just find myself bringing me with questions and sort of wanting to know more about these incredible worlds. But there were two things I wanted to ask you about. Uh, Yeah, the first one was about your own practice within architecture. And Mm. it seems like there's a big sort of overlap with this idea of the places themselves not being the things that make the change so much as the social structures that surround them. And this Mm -hmm. sense of ownership and this sense of needing to engage with communities and engage with people who live in places in order to make decisions about those places is very important. And it seems like there's a, a sort of overlap between those two things. And the other thing I wanted to ask about was this idea of Kathleen Spencer's absent paradigm, because there's this idea of framing something as something that is ours to fill in seems very much in line with both of those ideas. So really yeah, I don't know which one you'd rather talk about. If it's okay, I'll, I'll, um, I might talk about Kathleen Spencer's work just because my... Uh, head is in science fiction at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, I find Kathleen Spencer's way of talking about science fiction and world building incredibly useful because the role that the fictional has in our own understanding of the world. She talks about the world of the novel as being an absent paradigm, 
the conception there is that as an author writes, they in their own mind have an idea of a world which is whole and complete. Um, And when we pick up a novel or watch a film, we assume that there is a fully constructed world kind of sitting behind the text. Right. And that what we're given as a way of understanding that world are the kind of glimpses of description or the kind of implied surroundings that are constructed by characters speaking to one another or passages of description within a novel. But those are always partial because you're never going to be able to describe an entire world within within a book which also has to be entertaining um, and has to have a plot in some way. So what ends up happening is that there are these breaks between fragments that we get so that we might see particular glimpses about what a street scene is like but we might never see what a the whole city looks like right or we might see how a character feels when they walk into a particular room we might see that it's tall and vast and that for them that creates this feeling of insignificance and in order for us to be able to kind of construct that world in our mind's eye when we read it we begin to collage in pieces of our own experience to fill in the blanks so if we were talking about that kind of high or vast space we might begin to picture places which have a similar spatial arrangement or we might begin to picture places which have had a similar emotional impact on us so we're sort of projecting our own worlds into this fictional world that the kind of baggage that we've accumulated throughout our lifetimes becomes somehow part of somebody else's fiction. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So we write ourselves into the text in a way. And the thing that I think uh, I find really particularly fascinating for me is that that means that you have the opportunity then to not only kind of inhabit this wonderful, strange new place, but to kind of occasionally stumble across bits of your own lived experience that you have put into it, that you've kind of collaged into it. And that then you can begin to think quite critically about why you've ended up placing that uh, fragment of the Barbican into Ballard's High Rise. Why have you got this, um, that kind of memory of your school oddly collaged in? And I think what it means for me as an architect, particularly, is that it gives me a kind of critical perception, a critical distance from my own experiences that I might not have been able to see as clearly. So I would begin to be able to see the strangeness within the kind of mundane spaces that we've already talked about because they're suddenly made strange by being put into this new context of the science fictional world and I think that's really fascinating um this this way in which the book would then be different for every single reader because we would all put different parts of ourselves into it to construct a whole yeah that then we would each get a different point of reflection on our own lived experience Yeah, it's completely fascinating. It's always funny when you discuss after seeing a film or reading a book or something like that, and somebody else has been through it, the things that they take out of it can be completely (laughs) different messages. And the the reading of of that thing can be completely just framed by somebody else's prior experiences that they're bringing to the table alongside it. I always think that comes up so clearly as well when you've uh, when you've read a novel and then you go to see the film adaptation and um, and it can be so jarring yeah. because you suddenly realise that the world you'd constructed was based on a completely different set of reference points, completely different premises to the to the world that has been imagined by that particular director or artist. It's a long 
the lines of this idea that when you create something and you put it out, you no longer own it in the, in the sense that you did when you were making it because everybody else projects their own viewpoint onto it and sort of reads their own meanings into it and so on. And for me, one of the really wonderful things of uh, science fiction is that that is very often done consciously by the authors who are involved. Right. The science fiction theorist Darko Suvin talks about science fiction as a literature of cognitive estrangement. So his definition says that science fiction as a genre shouldn't only make things strange, it shouldn't only uh, estrange us from the world, that that's accomplished by by fantasy and by realist fiction as well. That the critical thing for him is that there's this element of cognitive estrangement, that by going through this process of seeing the world made strange, we are deliberately asked to reflect upon some part of our own lived experience with a new critical light. So for him, science fiction is a very deliberately political genre, I suppose, right. because it is written with the idea that it should in some way encourage critical thought in its readership. Does that highlight any sort of rifts between filmic and, and literary sci-fi? Because I could imagine that there's a, there's a different <laughs> level of reading that you get if you see something in a sort of purely filmic way compared to sort of in a way being a purist and saying, no, mm. that film wasn't the one that I saw. The church in that was the one from my childhood. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then you can also get sucked down the rabbit hole of uh, genre definition battles, which you start to say, well, is this technique, is this science fiction or do we put that kind of outside of genre because it doesn't work in a particular way? on people um, which I think is a less helpful way of thinking about it than kind of acknowledging that for me anyway most things can be science fiction if we can encourage a kind of science fictional way of looking at the world in ourselves that we undertake the kind of activities that Sarah Boyle does in Heat Death of the Universe where we work to make the familiar strange and then reflect on our own existing situation through having done that. So their kind of science fiction can move from being a genre of art or media to being a a kind of thought process, a kind of science fictional way of looking, um, which I think then becomes much more interesting because it allows us to engage with things like our own mundane domestic environments and to try and bring about a kind of way of a science fictional way of thinking about them to be able to engage with them differently. This podcast and the following message are sponsored by A Strange Sense of Alienation. Look around you. It's all there as normal. But wait. Look closer. Anything seem a little strange? Look closer still. Why, the whole world is not what it seems. A strange sense of alienation. What is and what isn't? And who are you to decide? That is the end of this half of the interview. As I mentioned at the start... I've split this interview across two episodes so that it's more listenable. Many thanks to Amy for taking the time to talk to me. Part two of our conversation will be available tomorrow. Until then, take care. <laughs>